Chapter 18, Part 1 of Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joanne Turner. Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. Chapter 18, Part 1 the government's non-political work. Quote, Politically and socially, the United States are a community living in a natural condition and conscious of doing so. And being in this healthy case and having this healthy consciousness, the community there uses its understanding with the soundness of health. It, in general, sees its political and social concerns straight and seized them clear, unquote. Matthew Arnold. The man of ability in Britain is too often tempted into the political field. The rare talent for organization and administration of the American, on the other hand, usually finds a far more useful field in the management of affairs, much more important than politics, in a land which has finally settled all fundamental political problems and now rests at peace upon the rock of the political equality of the citizen, while the parent land is tossing about upon unruly seas, knowing no rest. I have often admired the various non-political bureaus at Washington as being strictly American something which the democracy has evolved far superior to any similar bureaus ever produced by monarchical forms of government. This is probably the ablest and purest service in the world. I had intended to visit Washington to examine the various branches of this work and write an account of them, but the time could never be spared. The happy idea occurred to me to send my secretary, Mr. Bridge, to perform the task, with a request to write up the subject and see what he could make of it. He has done so well that I cannot do better than incorporate his account, which is as follows. One of Matthew Arnold's clear-thinking Yankees has said with epigrammatic brevity, that whenever three Americans get together, they organize. One becomes secretary, a second treasurer, and the other a standing committee of one to watch the executive. And surely this is more than a saying. A people trained to govern itself, even in the most minute affairs of local life, must, of necessity, develop a great capacity for organization and administration. Thus we find in America that groups of men with allied interests invariably have an organization to watch over the common weal. But for organization of the completest and most comprehensive character, it is needful to see what the federal government is doing at Washington. A visit to the numerous departments and bureaus there is like a journey with Alice in Wonderland. There in offices, some dingy, some magnificent, one may see, lying on tables or on shelves, 
the charts which indicate in every particular the nation's life and health, its pulse beats and respiration, its changing appetite and desires. Nay, the whole world, the universe itself, is told to put out its wrist that the experts may know how it is doing. The present condition of crops in California or in Egypt, the degree of cloudiness in Dakota or Maine, the number and condition of hogs in market at Kansas City or in transport to Chicago, the appearance of grasshoppers in Georgia, the wheat in store at Duluth or New York, the number of bales of cotton at Bombay or Mobile, the present position in mid-Atlantic of a waterlogged wreck or a buoy adrift, a drought in Arkansas, the southward flight of cranes in Dakota, the change made yesterday in the revolving light in the Bay of Nagasaki, Japan, the coal at present available for ships at St. Helena, the relative cloudiness of the planet Mars, these and a thousand and one other matters, as diverse as can be imagined, are noted, docketed, and labeled, every change being recorded almost as soon as it takes place. Let me give an example. The Agricultural Department has in its service about 10,000 persons, dispersed all over the continent and a few throughout the world. Their service is mainly voluntary. From their reports is compiled a monthly record, which is exhibited in chambers of commerce and published in newspapers, giving the area and condition of crops throughout the world, cost of transportation to home and foreign markets, prices prevailing on farms and in principal cities, stocks on hand, requirements of consumption, sources of supply, etc. Thus, the American farmer or merchant can always ascertain the amount of acreage in particular crops, the condition of the crops as regards growth, maturity, and probable yield, the number and local value of horses, cows, sheep, oxen, or other cattle, the prices of labor in different localities, or any other data bearing on his work. Further, seeds are distributed and planted all over the vast continent, and the results of differing soils and conditions carefully noted, and deductions drawn as to the appropriate environment. Then, the habits and life history of insects and birds injurious to vegetation, and the best means of destroying them, are subjects occupying the attention of a separate division of the department. In this work, specialists are at work in the field and laboratory, and the results of their labors, printed in special reports, are dispersed by the numerous local agricultural societies and institutions with which the department is in intimate communion. In its own garden, the department cultivates new varieties of fruits and plants for dissemination throughout the country. In this garden, Chinese sorghum, or sugarcane, was first grown in America, 
and the Chinese yam was introduced by the same means. The tea plant is another example, and the domestic product is largely consumed by the families who raise it. A Western orange planter writes to the department, The Bahia orange sent to California ten years ago is conceded to be the best variety produced in this state. It is the largest size and finest flavor, and sells higher than any other kind. It is worth to California all that the Department of Agriculture has ever cost the country. Amongst other work of the department may be named the analyses of grains and fruits to determine their nutritive value and analyses of soils and fertilizers, the microscopical study of plant diseases, especially fungi, the diffusion of knowledge concerning the uses of forest trees in relation to agriculture, the investigation of specific diseases amongst cattle, and efforts to prevent or cure. In brief, everything that relates directly or even remotely to farming comes within the scope of the agricultural department. So complete is its supervision that one examining its work is impelled to the belief that the American farmer has only to follow his instructions and the government department will run his farm and see that it pays. The United States Signal Service is another great organization which, by its electric veins spread over a continent, receives crude material, assimilates it, and sends it back pulsating in a rich, life-giving stream. From Cape Breton Island to Southern Oregon, and from San Diego, California to Havana, an area 3,000 miles long by 2,000 miles wide, embracing 150 intermediate stations. Messages are simultaneously flashed over the wires to Washington twice a day, reporting all atmospheric phenomena. An hour afterward, the little room of the assistant signal officer in G Street, Washington, holds in its dingy precincts a chart which indicates barometric pressure, direction and velocity of wind, temperature, dew point, rainfall, and cloud areas of every part of the six million square miles covered by its network of telegraphs. A stranger dropping in at midnight of January 9, 1886, would have been told that local snows were falling in the lake regions, that the temperature had risen in the Gulf states, and that the rivers had risen a foot at Cincinnati, Cairo, and Memphis, and fallen five feet at Chattanooga, that cautionary offshore signals were exhibited from Wilmington to New York and cautionary signals from New Haven to Eastport. He would probably have been shown the track of the storm which brought to Washington the lowest barometric reading ever seen there, and the chart, being prepared under his eyes, would show him the same storm disappearing into Labrador. A few hours later, the finished chart, reproduced by telegraph, would be in the office of every important newspaper, 
every post office, thousands of railway stations and chambers of commerce throughout the land, from San Francisco to Boston, and from Minneapolis to Key West in the Gulf Stream. The people of New England would know on receiving the morning paper that for the next 32 hours they were to have cold, fair weather with a rising barometer, while those of Los Angeles in Lower California and Jacksonville, Florida, would be gladdened to know that the cold wave was passing away. In Minnesota, railway officials would learn by the same report published in their newspapers or hanging in the ticket office, that there would be no immediate need of snowplows, although traffic would be slightly impeded by local snows. The skipper who contemplated leaving New York and sailing coastwise would hesitate on reading at the breakfast table that cautionary signals were displayed, and, influenced by the report of some army surgeon or amateur meteorologist away in Dakota, he might possibly decide to spend another day at home. All sorts and conditions of men are affected by this chart. One postpones a journey. Another, calculating on the arrival of grain in eastern cities, sells before the market falls. Emigrants decide to go west by the Southern Pacific route. Physicians relax their restraints as the improving weather admits the invalid to the fresh air. An amusing illustration of the extent to which the warnings of the Weather Bureau are read and heeded was lately afforded by a mistake made by a Western observer in his report of local temperature. He reported about 40 degrees instead of 4. The result was that the officer who makes the predictions concluded from his data that a warm wave was on its way east. Thirty million of people living east of the Mississippi forthwith left overcoats at home and put on galoshes in preparation for a thaw which never came. The unlucky weather prophet at first excused the tardy arrival of the warm wave by saying that western railways were blocked with snow and arrivals of all kinds were delayed. But as the days passed and no warm wave appeared, the newspapers launched forth an avalanche of ridicule, the Americans' mode of complaint, at the untruthful prophet, and presently everybody in America was talking about the young lieutenant in Washington who, oblivious to complainings and ridicule, went on drawing his isobars and isotherms and making his calculations and predictions. It implies great faith in this weather prophet when people complain that he ought to have corrected the error made by the local observer in Colorado or Nevada. It has come to this that the weather prophet must not only predict correctly from his data, but even correct the data if these are wrong. Considering the haste with which the weather charts and predictions are prepared, it is surprising how few errors are made.
83% of all the indications made last year for the Atlantic coast were justified, while on the Pacific, the verifications averaged 87%. Of 2,864 cautionary signals displayed at ports, 2,301, or 80%, were justified. Cold wave signals were justified in about the same proportion, 815 out of 946 having been verified. The Signal Service engages in much special work. It furnishes the Farmer's Bulletin with meteorological information that is of special interest to the agriculturist. This is an official publication and the government has taken every available means to put it into the hands of the class for which it is intended. The rise and fall of rivers are watched, and timely warning given by telegraph of coming floods. The people of the Western Plains receive similar warning of the approach of local storms, and the agriculturalist, ranchmen, and others generally have 12 hours to prepare for the coming norther. The Bureau has also undertaken the task of announcing the coming of locusts, grasshoppers, and other insect scourges. Frost warnings for the benefit of the sugar industries of Louisiana and the orange growers of Florida have, of late years, made the service popular in the South. The Bureau has a very complete local service in the Cotton Belt, which supplies information daily as to temperature and rainfall in every part of the district. Then, once a month, the service publishes a review of meteorological observations made in every part of the world, including Siberia, Greenland, Iceland, Borneo, Turkestan, Japan, China, and some places whose names are suggestive only of desolation and savagery. An important extension of the signal service has been made to the seacoast. Stations are placed at intervals along the coast and connected by wire with each other and with Washington. Here, Storm flags and danger warnings are made visible to vessels moving off the coast. A ship sailing from the equator to New York, as she passes Cape Henlopen, may inquire by signals whether any hurricane is impending, and, if so, whether she has time to reach Sandy Hook or must take shelter behind the Delaware breakwater or a vessel bound south from New York may inquire at the Capes of the Delaware whether any storm is likely to strike her before she can make Cape Hatteras and receive full answer by telegraph from the chief signal officer at Washington without interrupting his voyage. General Hazen, the chief signal officer, very properly thinks this division of his work of superlative importance. He says, The time is not far distant when the possession of a coast not covered by seacoast, storm signal, and signal service stations, watching as sentinels each its own beat of sea and shore, 
and ready to summon aid by electric wires, will be held as much an evidence of semi-barbarism as is now, among civilized nations, the holding of any national coast without a system of lighthouse lights. The achievements of the Signal Service are surprising even to those who know of its numerous observing stations spread over a land area nearly twice as great as that of Europe. But what shall we think of similar achievements on the ocean? If we are amazed at the extent of meteorological observations conducted on land, what will be our feelings on learning that similar work is being done on the sea and predictions given for use of mariners? I have before me a remarkable chart prepared by Commander Bartlett of the Navy. And here, mark the difference between a government by the people and a government by a class. Naval officers in America do not receive their highest rewards for bombarding a defenseless Alexandria or sacking a Tamatave. Their honors flow from life-saving services. And shall it not be said that the Schleys and Bartlets of America are greater than the Seymours and de Courcys of semi-civilized Europe whose glory is to slay. The European method is to make a solitude and call it peace. The American reverses the process and, by the gentle arts of peace, makes a teeming city of the solitude and a garden of the wilderness. To return to the chart, however, here, at a glance, we have the safe transatlantic route, carefully drawn to avoid the ice, which in January hardly came further south than latitude 53 degrees. The sailing route to the equator, calculated to give ships the benefit of the trade winds, is also as clear as careful drawing and good printing can make it. The prevailing winds for the month are indicated, as well as the direction of ocean currents, while special symbols mark the position of wrecks, buoys adrift, waterspouts, and localities haunted by whales. Directions for the use of oil in heavy seas are printed in the corner of the chart. Derelicts drifting about in the tracks of vessels are observed, and their changing position marked from month to month. Here, for example, is a waterlogged schooner, the 21 Friends, which, despite its name, has been more threatening than 21 enemies. The vessel was abandoned off the coast of Virginia on March 24th. Being lumber-laden, she continued to float, and by April 28th had drifted 1,200 miles. During the summer months, she pursued her solitary course across the Atlantic, ever followed by watchful eyes in Washington. On September 20th, she was apparently making for Queenstown, but suddenly headed off for Cape Finisterre, where she was seen early in December. She has probably ere this been towed into a Spanish port. Several other floating wrecks have been watched by anxious eyes in the hydrographic office, which, 
unable to send out and destroy such dangers in the track of commerce, could only give warning by indicating as nearly as possible their position. This wonderful chart is soon to give the position of fogs in the North Atlantic. Thus, the ferry between the old and new lands is ever being made safer. The weather predictions are, of course, only proximate, being largely based on the periodicity of meteorological changes in the North Atlantic. Here are examples of the weather indications given, copied from the chart for January 1886. The storm area on the North Atlantic is at its maximum, between the coast of the United States north of Cape Hatteras and that of Europe north of 47 degrees, a gale of wind may be expected once in six days. These gales are most violent when the wind is between southwest and northwest, but a large percentage do not develop a force of more than 10. Heavy northers may be expected along the Gulf Coast of Mexico and Texas as often as once in 10 days. Some may extend as far east as Key West and south over the Caribbean Sea to Aspinwall. There is little danger of ice in the routes of transatlantic steamers. And then come recommendations in regard to passage off Cape Horn, which admirably show the deductive methods of modern weather prophets. In the summer season, that is, during the long days, there exists a barometric minimum over the vast plains of Patagonia. In consequence of the constant indrift due to this atmospheric condition, the centers of depressions which travel from the Pacific to the Atlantic are deflected toward the north, causing violent storms in the region of Cape Horn and Tierra del Fuego. It is therefore desirable, after passing Staten Land, to stand to the southward as rapidly as possible to the 59th or 60th parallel, if the ice permits, where the influence of the navigable semicircle of the atmospheric whirl will be felt, in which relatively light northeast and southeast winds prevail and are favorable for making the passage into the Pacific. Here's fine revolution and we had the trick to see it. The Fuegians, who live in this inhospitable region, believe, as Fitzroy tells us, that storms are sent by evil spirits to punish the wicked. And here, Captain Bartlett, with unconscious iconoclasm, says their cause is only a barometric minimum in Patagonia. These scientific experts are rapidly taking all romance out of life with their classifications and technical phraseology. If the Fuegians get a sight of Captain Bartlett's chart, they will at once become a religionless race, for it is obviously vain to attempt to propitiate a barometric minimum. The monthly publication of this encyclopedic chart is but a small part of the work of the hydrographic office. Branch offices are maintained at the principal ports to give information to mariners concerning routes, to adjust barometers and chronometers, to examine old charts and point out their errors. 
Nearly 11,000 persons received nautical information last year from the officers under the hydrographer, and nearly 12,000 vessels were boarded and information collected from their logbooks. Then, every week, notices to mariners are published and circulated all over the world, announcing changes in lights, buoys, and everything affecting navigation whether at Kodono Saima, in the Japanese Inland Sea, or in the Swash Channel at New York. The enormous work entailed by this may be gauged from the fact that there are about 20,000 buoys in the world, and every change in color or position is immediately reported to the hydrographer who at once announces the change to every American consul and to hundreds of mariners throughout the world. So, too, with the lighthouses of the world, which are so numerous that a list of them fills six volumes of nearly 300 pages each. This list, by the way, was compiled in the hydrographic office, and 20 days after receipt of the copy, a 300 edition of this six-volume work returned from the government printers ready for distribution in the Navy. In this office, the Navy's store of charts is kept, and every change referred to above is made on these charts by hand. The office likewise prints a great many charts itself, and of these, the plates are regularly corrected to date. Altogether, this hydrographic office is one of the wonders of Washington. If it were better known, it would probably be more subject to the invasion of sightseers at the Capitol than the Washington Monument. But it goes quietly along, working out its own salvation and that of thousands of poor sailors who never heard of Captain Bartlett, the cherub that sits up aloft to take care of the life of poor Jack. In the same building is the Office of Naval Intelligence, where a chart is published indicating from month to month the supply of coal at all the coaling stations of the world, and also the means of telegraphic communication accessible to mariners wherever they may find themselves. In natural sequence should here come an account of the life-saving service, which in America is not an institution supported by voluntary contributions, as in England, but is a department under the government. As a result of this difference, it is claimed that the American service is more efficient than that of Britain that a discipline almost military in its severity is necessary to obtain the best results where groups of men are working under the conditions usual at wrecks. This is a healthful and worthy rivalry. Let this be the only form of contention between the mother and her child land. Details of this excellent organization are not called for here. Lord Salisbury's ecumenium is as applicable to the life-saving service as to the Senate. Marvelous in its efficiency, 
and strength. End of chapter 18, part 1.